Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The 20th Sunday after Trinity, Matthew 22, 1-14. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In our Savior, dear Christian friends, according to Holy Scriptures, there are people whom God has created in vain, yes, for whom it would have been better had they never been born. There are people who are eternally lost. After these people have lived a short time on earth, they, upon death, go to the place where there is no light, no rest, no joy, nothing but the most impenetrable darkness and inexpressible unrest, anguish, grief, torment, and pain. They go to the prison of hell, from which there is no deliverance. Their chances for salvation are then forever lost. An insurmountable chasm separates them from the dwelling place of the elect. No gleam of hope will ever again dawn. Nothing but despair and misery without measure is an end is their eternal, unchangeable lot. Fearful thought! That has so shocked many people that they have boldly denied the fact of eternal damnation. But what good do our lives do? God in his holy word has revealed this fact to us in understandable words. David writes of the damned, Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Psalm forty-nine, fourteen. Isaiah concludes his prophecies with, Their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. Isaiah sixty six twenty four, And John, who saw hell in a vision, writes in his book of Revelation, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. Revelation fourteen eleven, And Jesus Christ himself, who had come to save all men, says of his betrayer, It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Matthew twenty six twenty four. As shocking as the thought is that there are really people who will be eternally lost, yet it is even more shocking that according to the evidence of God's word, only a few, but many, yes, the great majority, that most men will be eternally lost. Many are called, but few are chosen, says Christ to us in our text today. And in another passage, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, 
and those who find it are few. Matthew 7. Who can think of this without shivering and shuddering? Would it not be frightful enough if only one person were be to be eternally pushed out of heaven into hell to languish forever in the fiery pool of torment and pain? But what shall we say when we hear that not only one, not a few, but that many, that most, that alas millions of people are eternally, just think, eternally lost? Ah, my friends, when we think of that, we can do nothing else but fall upon our knees and cry to the holy and gracious God, Lord, Lord, mercy, mercy. Is it actually possible that God will allow so many to be lost eternally? Is God actually dealing fairly if he eternally rejects millions of people whom he created, eternally withdraws his hand from them, and without a care gives them endless misery as their eternal reward? Why, why, we ask, are there so many called, but so few chosen? Christ answers this question in today's text. Let us hear now this answer to warn and awaken us all. Matthew 22, 1-14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So far our text. We cannot doubt the main thought, the central truth contained in the parable of the wedding feast. Christ himself summarizes it in the words, For many are called, but few are chosen. We therefore ask today, Why are so many called, but few chosen? The answer which the Lord himself gives to this question is twofold. Many are called, but most decline the invitation, and many outwardly comply with the invitation, but few from their hearts. We pray. Lord Jesus, you have revealed to us that many are called, but few are chosen. Not that we should despair of your grace, but that we do not neglect your grace in fleshly security. Oh, have mercy on us all, Savior of sinners. Grant that the earnest word which we will now hear shall not sound in our ears in vain. May it go down into the depths of our hearts, that today we might not only be among the called, but also among the elect. Hear us. Amen.
God did not only create man holy and righteous, but he also gave him all necessary powers to remain so. But man rebelled against God, willfully transgressed his law, and wantonly revolted against his holy will. Hence, no creature could have accused God of unrighteousness if he had done absolutely nothing in order to save man, but without further ado sent all men to hell for their rebellion. Yet, God is not only holy and righteous, he is also merciful and gracious, and did not deal thus with man. He poured out all the riches of his mercy. He decided to help fallen man and bring him to that salvation for which he had been destined from eternity. Christ shows this at the very beginning of our parable, where he begins with the words, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. With this, Christ reminds us of God's great deed of mercy for the salvation of all men. He made a marriage for his only begotten son, commanding his son to become a man. He united him with fallen human nature in order that man might again be reconciled and united with him, his God. Had God arranged the marriage of the incarnation of his son, but would not have invited men to this marriage, what good would the greatest wonder of divine love have been? It would have taken place in vain. How does Christ continue in his parable? He says, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. And so it is. All men are invited by God. Scarcely had man fallen when God immediately invited him to the marriage of his son and said, Be of good cheer. The woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent. And that this invitation might reach all men of the ancient world, God granted the first and succeeding generations a lifespan of well nigh a thousand years. They could tell their children and children's children what a wonderful redemption from sin and misery the Lord had promised fallen man. Yet our gracious God was not satisfied with this first general invitation. When later man did not live as long, he elected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the whole nation of Israel. He not only invited this nation, but he also led it about in the world in a wonderful way, so that it invited the whole world to the marriage of the promised redemption. Yes, when finally God's Son had actually come, and the union with human nature was completed, we read in our text, again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see... I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. These other servants were John the Baptist, the seventy disciples, the twelve apostles. They all called with one voice, Come, all of you who are sinners. God's Son has become a man. He has united with your nature. He has earned for you a new relationship with God, and hence forgiveness and grace with God, redemption from hell and death, righteousness, life, heaven, and salvation. He has prepared everything for you. Come, oh, come to the marriage. But what took place? Did the people come? Did they drop everything else to appear at the marriage of God's Son with shouts of joy, with thanksgiving, praise, and adoration? No. The Lord mentions the results of the first invitation of the guests by saying, But they would not come. And of the second, But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And so it goes. The whole history of the heathen bef world before Christ lies in the brief words, But they would not come. 
and the whole history of the Jewish nation lies in these words. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So what is the first answer which Christ gives to the question, Why are many called, but few chosen? It is this, All are called, but the majority decline the call. Now tell me, must we not become silent at this answer? Or do we still want to, and can we actually accuse God of unrighteousness when we hear this? Ah, uh-huh. just consider. Man falls from God into sin and hatred of God. Thus he hurls himself upon the sword of divine righteousness, plunges into death and damnation. In order that God would remain righteous and still save man, he carries out the inexpressible wonder of his mercy. He lets his only begotten Son become a man, suffer and die, and then invites all, who became his enemies, to come and seat themselves at the banquet table of grace and salvation. And man? He does not come. He despises everything. He turns his back to the messengers of salvation. Yes, in inconceivable malice, he seizes them, treats them with scorn, and kills them. Now, what can, what should, what must God do with such? Should he bind these obstinate people hand and foot, drag them to his banquet table, and force them to see and taste his goodness? Should God tear in pieces the very law of his holiness, which he gave to all men? Should he throw it under the feet of men, that they might eternally trample upon and profane it? Should God cease being righteous, hence cease being God, in order that man can remain in sin and still be saved? Yes, should God make himself an object of the eternal mockery and scorn of man, in order that men can make an eternal holiday out of his weakness? Should God open his heaven to those who want to remain his enemies, so that they might continue to fight against him, even there, and defile his holy of holies? Should he let man turn heaven into a scene of sin and malice, as he did earth? No. God stands justified. Justified not only as one who deals righteously, but also as a gracious, friendly, and compassionate God, even if millions are lost. For he has offered, for the deliverance of all fallen men, the greatest and most precious gift, his only begotten Son. Twice before the coming of Christ, he asked all men to accept the salvation prepared for them, but they did not hear. He invited them, but they did not come. He proffered the hand of reconciliation, but they rejected it. Again, he turned his reconciled face to them, but they insolently smote him in the face and turned away. Hell itself will become silent when the heavens praise God's eternal mercy. It will then pass sentence upon itself, and weeping loudly cry out, Lord, you are righteous and your judgments are upright. You have not damned us, but we have damned ourselves. Therefore, if you who secretly quarrel with God hear that only a few are elected and that most men are lost, pause for a moment. Fall on your knees and in humility worship him who wishes to save all men and condemns only those who do not want to save themselves, who want to damn themselves. And should there be a person among us who does not want to accept the invitation to the marriage of grace, who wants to persevere in his unbelief, who wants to know nothing of the reconciliation through Christ, let him know. 
His hope that God still will not eternally damn him is a sacrilege. God does not first judge him who does not believe. He is judged already. Over him who does not believe, God's wrath does not first burst into flame. God's wrath, which had risen upon him long ago, merely remains upon him. For him who does not believe God does not first create hell. He has elected hell for himself, which was created alone for Satan and his angels. He condemns himself. However, from our text, we see that even many of those who accept the invitation are not elected. The question then arises, why are they lost? Permit me to answer this question. The Lord says in the second part of our parable that after almost no one accepted the first two invitations to come to the marriage, the king became angry indeed. He sent out his army against those who had killed his servants, destroyed these murderers, and burned their city, which, as you know, went into fulfillment against the Jews. Nevertheless, the king sent his remaining servants out into the highways to invite anyone whom they could find to the marriage. Many, both good and evil, actually happened and appeared because of this new invitation, and all the tables were filled. Finally, the king looked at his guests. When he found one among them who was not dressed in a wedding garment, he had him bound hand and foot and thrown into outer darkness, where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. The meaning of this second part of our parable is clear. The Lord wants to say, During the time of the Old Testament, only a few followed the call into the church of God. On the other hand, after the holy apostles will have gone out into all the world, millions of heathen will in a short time obey the call of the gospel, gather in the Christian church, hear God's word, use the sacraments, and outwardly act like Christians. Though the number who come to the marriage during the time of the Old Testament, that is, who found their way into God's church and remained in it, were few. On the other hand, the number of these in the time of the New Testament who obeyed the call to the marriage and through holy baptism entered through the door of the Christian church has been immeasurably great. But now, why does the Lord say that many of these guests would not be elected? Because they were found not wearing the wedding garment. There can be no doubt what sort of Christians the Lord means by that. Other passages of the scripture clear the matter up. For example, the apostle Paul writes, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, Galatians 3:27. And again, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4:24. There are two kinds of garments with which every Christian should be clothed. First, the dress of the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is put on in true faith. Second, the dress of the new man, which is received through daily sanctification. Christ says that he who does not wear this dress will be cast into outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He will be cast out of the marriage hall of the church into the house of eternal darkness, the abyss of hell. It is true that this truth is a terrible truth. It is, a, it is terrible beyond measure to hear that many who are baptized who called themselves and associated with Christians, who prayed and sang with Christians, who perhaps were considered by nearly everyone as Christians and were called their dear brother, who in the meal of grace partook of the body and blood of Christ's Son, 
that many, alas, perhaps the majority of these should be eternally lost. Our heart says, is not God satisfied to condemn eternally all manifest sinners of his word and grace? Must he eternally condemn even those who accepted his invitation to appear at the marriage of his son? But my friends, I ask you, can we accuse God of letting those be lost who come to the wedding of grace, yet do not wear the wedding garment of either true faith or sanctification, but appear in the filthy dress of their own righteousness? Can we accuse God if he lets those be lost who confess with their mouth that they are poor lost sinners, that they believe in Christ their Savior, yet who secretly do not consider themselves to be so bad, who do not earnestly believe in Christ as the Savior of sinners, who rely on some good deeds which they suppose they have done, who do not give God and his Son the glory that he alone can save them? Can we accuse God? If he lets those be lost who outwardly act like Christians, yet in their heart remain sinners, who love the world, who let sin rule them continually, who continually love sin and thus remain enemies of God. Ah, bear in mind, whoever obeys the word of God outwardly, hears it, approves of it, praises it, but inwardly remains as he is, is a much more vile, godless person than he who does not come at all because he does not consider God's word as God's word. Such a false Christian commits not only the sin of unbelief, but in addition, the sin of hypocrisy. He is no Christian, and yet wants to appear as a Christian. He is no believer, and yet wants to pass for a believer. With his mouth, he confesses God's word to be the truth, and yet with his works, he acts as though God's word were lies. He calls himself an adherent of Jesus Christ and, taking the name of Christ, calls himself a Christian. Yet he brings disgrace upon this name by a life dedicated to sin. Now, what should God do with such a false Christian? Here, through their unchristian living, they have brought shame upon God's word and his church. God in eternity must cut them off from his church so that all the world may see that, Though known as Christians, they were Christ's most wretched enemies. They act as though they believed in the sacrifice of reconciliation made for them, but in their heart they despised it. They appear without a mediator before the judgment seat of eternal righteousness. Their sentence can be nothing else but damnation. We have heard why many are called, but few are chosen. What shall we do? Do we want to sound the abyss of the inscrutable counsels and judgments of God? Do we want to ask more questions? Far be it. Once an inquisitive man asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And what did the Lord answer? Did he answer all of his questions? Did he perhaps solve all of his doubts? Not at all. He said to him, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Luke 13. Let that satisfy us also. Since we know that many are called but few chosen, let us not meditate upon the how and the why. Let us work with fear and trembling that we will be saved, that we will not be found among the many who are lost, but among the few who reach the goal. God does not cast off a single person who does not of himself willfully reject him and his grace. Now, 
during this time of grace, God wants to show mercy even to the greatest of sinners. As long as it is today, let us seek the Lord while he still can be found. Let us call upon him because he is still near. Isaiah 55. There is still room. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.